Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. And thank you for joining us for this virtual event, whether you're joining us live or watching via recording. My name is Janet Hoder, and I'm the Senior Communication Specialist with the CGIR Research Program on Agriculture for Nutrition and Health and the CGIR COVID-19 Hub. We look forward to an engaging discussion today and have a very full program for you. Uh, it includes an overview presentation on One Health, a dynamic series of rapid fire presentations that showcase the broad scope of One Health work from across CGIR and key partners, and a panel discussion on working across sectors in the One Health space. Following that, we look forward to hearing from you. Please submit your brief questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfPRE on Twitter, and we will address them in the Q&A session that will follow the panelists' remarks. I'd now like to introduce Ekaterina Kravonos, Deputy Director for Programs at CJIR and co-lead of the COVID-19 Hub to give opening remarks. Katya? Thank you very much, Janet. And on behalf of the CGR COVID-19 Hub Management Team, please allow me to welcome you to this policy seminar that will focus on COVID-19 and the implications for One Health research. COVID-19 is a global crisis that has affected health systems, but also to a large extent food systems and our social development, and it has triggered an economic crisis of uh, an enormous magnitude. The hub was launched in June 2020 and was tasked to, to lead the efforts of CGR on communication, coordination, and some focused collective research actions to help the countries and stakeholders to respond to this crisis and to recover from it as quickly as possible. It is a cross-CGR structure hosted by the CGIR research program on agriculture for nutrition and health, A4NH, and it's co-implemented closely with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And uh, we are joined here today by colleagues from, from that school. We coordinate CGI work in four key areas. One is addressing value chain fractures. Another one is One Health, and this is the topic of today's seminar. Supporting country responses, where we work very closely with country stakeholders to define what should be done in, in a given context in five country, given that they have facing vastly different um, challenges related to COVID-19, and diverse priorities linked to the agriculture and food security. The fourth area is resilient food systems and building back better, which really goes across all the other three working themes as well, because as we recover from this crisis, we're learning and we're trying as CGR also to infuse greater resilience into food systems. Given that COVID-19 and many other recent epidemics are zoonotic in nature, the, one of the key challenges in the crisis has really been how to, determine, uh, how to determine future pandemics and epidemics, how they can be avoided or managed better, managed more quickly. So we need to improve prevention, detection, and response to emerging and endemic zoonosis. So this really requires a One Health approach that recognizes the close connection between the health of people, animals, and our shared environment. And this is why One Health is such a vital part of our COVID-19 hub. So in this seminar, we will explore the One Health approaches, what it means for food systems and agricultural sector, what lessons we're learning from this pandemic, and how risks, benefits, and consequences can, can be identified and assessed as we move forward. So the panelists and presenters bring very varied and rich experiences from across regions, disciplines, approaches, we look very much forward to hearing the diverse perspectives and engaging with you in a discussion. 
So welcome and uh, really looking forward to this. Thank you, Janet, over to you. Thank you, Katya. I'd now like to introduce John McDermott, Director of the CGIR Research Program on Agriculture for Nutrition and Health and co-lead of the CGIR COVID-19 Hub to provide a framing presentation on One Health and its applications for agriculture. John? Thank you. Um, welcome, everyone. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll try and frame the One Health in the context of agri-food systems. Next, next slide, please. Now, uh, what is One Health? Well, it brings together three areas of health, uh, human health, animal health, and environmental health. And on the surface, this could be quite broad, um, but we look at these from a focus on infectious diseases and then the linkages between these different systems as it relates to the risk and consequences of infectious diseases. And this, really arises naturally out of very early thinking um, in health around um, infectious diseases, the thinking about pathogens, once we had the germ theory of, of uh, infectious diseases, their hosts and their environments and how, how important all of those was. It, the idea of One Health has been around for quite a while. In the early part of the, of the 20th century, it focused a lot on landscapes and actually a lot of the work that's happening now on forest incursions and things like that, because we were seeing new uh, infectious diseases like yellow fever and other hemorrhagic fevers coming out of that. Um, in the mid part of the century, there was the natural history of infectious diseases and lots of work on complicated parasites. And one medicine, uh, somebody called Calvin Schwabe, who I had the pleasure of studying with, uh, who was a real proponent of, of the One Health approach. But they were always kind of interesting academic things and never really took off. So why is it important now? Uh, next slide. So, um, and obviously with COVID, uh, One Health is increasingly prominent. Um, the, the reason it's prominent, in my opinion, is that it's critical to human health. Um, and why is that? Well, for three big reasons. And the two biggest ones are uh, a lot of the epidemics, pandemics, emerging diseases that we're seeing and we're all worried about are coming from animals. Uh, you can estimate this many different ways, but a, a large majority of them, we often use the figure 75%, are coming from animals. The second thing that's emerged about five or six years ago was the real importance of food safety and its burden of disease comparable to malaria, HIV, and tuberculosis. Health only works on big problems. That's where they focus. That's where they put their money. And food safety now as is, is as big a, a, a thing as, as, the, as health works on. The other one which is more potential is antimicrobial resistance. Now this is a huge concern for the health community. They're very concerned that they won't have antimicrobials to treat people who get infections. Uh, it's a huge problem. And we don't really know how important uh, the One Health dimension of this is yet, but there are huge quantities of antimicrobials given to animals and to fish. Um, and so that, that's a big issue. Um, and, um, and, and so that's why I think One Health is increasingly prominent because it really matters to human health. 
Next slide. Um, and just to, to, to remind you of why kind of emerging zoonoses are so important, here's some big emerging zoonoses that we've, we've had over the past 40 years or so, uh, showing you where they come from, uh, whether they're amplified in livestock or other hosts, um, and what kind of geographical impact they've had. Um, and these are increasingly happening. And so that just gives you a sense of some of the recent ones. I'll talk a little bit more about what the future might hold later. Uh, next slide. Now, obviously, COVID has expanded the concerns about One Health uh, because it's a perfect storm of a, of a health crisis, a food crisis, an economic crisis, a social crisis. Um, and this is from the Global Food Policy Report where we look at COVID-19 and food system transformation. And, and just to, to bring the health and the economics to bear, you can see the cumulative deaths from COVID and increasing, this goes till March, 2021, and that's increasing even faster at the moment, so very concerning. And then it's also got the, uh, the reductions in GDP, which were very dramatic in 2020, the, you know, the most dramatic we've seen for some time. And um, there's a lot of optimism, I think, that this is going to bounce back in 2021, but that depends totally on the pandemic. And uh, so that's not clear at all yet either. Uh, next slide. Just to look a little bit more at the dynamics of health, food, and economics in the first year of the pandemic. Um, we saw that in countries that had lockdowns, there were severe reductions in economic uh, processes and reductions in GDP. Agriculture was a little bit spared. Um, it was often kept aside um, and not, and not uh, too influenced. But you can see that, and, and a lot of countries that had good capacity in, in doing lockdowns and, and had successful ones actually had huge economic contractions. And we don't see um, countries repeating the severe lockdowns of the first phase now because they learned a lot about how, how bad they were, particularly for poor people. And, um, and so there, there's been a lot of effort with social protection programs and, and things to help the poor, but it's brought out a real need where the health, food, and economics come together about what we do for the poor um, and their basic needs, water, food, housing, um, education, et cetera. Um, so next slide. So a bit of an expansion of One Health. I wanted to, to look at two future issues associated with the big reasons why One Health is big, and one is the emerging zoonoses. Um, this is a map that comes from a report that I did together with uh, Bernard Bett and Delia Randolph from ILRI. And um, basically what it's showing is that for the last couple of centuries, the real hotspots for disease emergence have been Asia. And that's because of the density of people, animals, and the, the way they use forests and, and interact with wildlife. Um, and to a large extent, we haven't seen the kind of epidemics that occur in Asia in Africa because those densities haven't been there, but they're coming. And so we can expect in future in Africa to see epidemics be larger and more frequent 
just because there's a there's a much greater increase in human populations, animal populations, and and incursions into forests than we've seen in the past, and so that's going to be something that's increasingly happening. So expect more of these, especially in Africa. And then the last slide is we showed that food safety is a big concern, and it's a big concern in transitioning food systems. So these are food systems in lower middle and middle income countries that are changing dramatically. And if you look at this graph from the World Bank Safe Food Imperative Report, what you can see is the burden of, of foodborne diseases due to microbial uh, contamination of perishables is very high in these countries, countries like Vietnam, for example. Um, and so that's going to be increasingly an issue that we need to look at. And these are countries that are changing dramatically where we want to include poor people in evolving systems, et cetera. And so um, this, is, this is going to be an increasing concern. So there'll be lots of pressures on the One Health approach going forward. And these are two big ones that we can already see. Uh, let me stop there, Janet, and hand back to you. Thank you, John. Uh, with that framing of One Health in mind, I'd now like to welcome our rapid fire presenters to share a few insights on the work they're doing on One Health related to COVID-19, as well as other zoonoses and cross-sectoral uh, issues that are helping inform how we think about and respond to crises such as these. Each presenter will have two minutes, and we've added a countdown clock in the corner of their slide to make things a little more engaging. They will only be able to give a very brief introduction to what are all complex studies, but you can use the link found on the event page to learn more. With that, I'd like to introduce our first presenter, Steve Stahl from the International Livestock Research Institute, who will present on bushmeat value chains and zoonotic risks. Steve? Steve, I believe you're muted. The aim of this study is to understand uh, the practices, actors, incentives driving bushmeat value chains and implications for disease risk. This is based on extensive literature search. So some of the results found that some 44% of forest margin households across Africa participate in bushmeat value chains. And the level of economic activity of bushmeat is very large, tens of millions of dollars, possibly more and generates important livelihoods for both men and women. The level of rural bushmeat consumption is very high. It can range from 20, 30 grams per person per day up to 100. And so it plays a key role in providing animal source foods. We found that consumption is less if cheap livestock meat is available. In spite of the visibility of bushmeat markets, most hunting is not driven by market demand, but is actually driven by consumption needs in rural households. In terms of zoonotic risks, the level of understanding of those risks among hunters and consumers is generally poor, and few of those actors handling bushmeat employ any risk mitigation practices. And until recently, monitoring efforts of bushmeat focused on conservation and consumption issues and basically ignored zoonotic risks. Some of the research needs that are apparent are improving community zoonotic risk understanding, exploring livestock alternatives, looking at community-based bushmeat management strategies, and also integrated 
monitoring methods which combine conservation, consumption, and also zoonotic risks. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Next, Amy Ekowitz of the Center for International Forestry Research will present on behalf of her colleague, Julia Fa, who was unable to join us today. We're grateful to Amy for stepping in so we can still learn about Julia's work on deforestation and Ebola. Amy? Thanks so much. And hopefully Julia will be able to join for the question and answer period. Um, so uh, Julia and her colleagues have been working on for a number of years to try to understand where, when, and why Ebola outbreaks are likely to occur. So first, if you look in the left-hand corner of the screen, um, some of their work um, led to uh, mapping Ebola suitable areas by combining information on ecological characteristics with information on species assemblages for mammals that are known to be susceptible to Ebola, either as reservoirs or have been found to be affected with the disease. And so they were able to come up with uh, pretty precise maps on Ebola favorable areas. And then they've used that in, in further studies. So if you go to the right part of the screen, you'll see um, a, a figure with yellow dots and blue dots. And so what they did was they uh, mapped actual Ebola outbreaks in yellow and then randomly selected other points in areas that were favorable to Ebola based on the suitability maps. And they found that the locations that actually had Ebola outbreaks were more likely to have experienced deforestation in the two years before the outbreak compared to the control areas. Um, I, I don't have a clock, so I might be cut off in the middle, but I'll keep on going until, until I get cut off. So I'm going now to the bottom of the screen. <laughs> You've got about 30 seconds. Okay, so bats are one of the species thought to be important reservoirs for Ebola. And so Julia and her colleagues um, did a study where they found that the range of some fruit bats uh, was linked to human activities in Ebola favorable geographical ranges. And that for five fruit bat species, these areas overlapped with areas of actual Ebola outbreaks and with deforestation. So overall, the work that she and her colleagues are doing are helping us to understand where, when, and why Ebola outbreaks are likely to, to occur. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Next, Hoosook Lee from ILRI will share with us his work on coronavirus transmission at the Wildlife Livestock Human Interface in Vietnam. Hoosook, over to you. Thank you very much. The main objective of the study is to monitor the interspecies transmission of coronavirus along the wildlife supply chain in Vietnam. So basically, we will conduct a cross-sectional study in two regions, one in north, the other in south. So in, in, in North, we will collect bat samples in the cave. In addition, human pig samples will be collected that have a high chance of being exposed to the bats, such as hunters, traders, and farmers. As you can see the picture on the left corner, our team already visited one of the caves, which is very close to the Chinese border, as well as pig farms. In the southern part of Vietnam, the wildlife trade for human consumption and bat guano farms for fertilizers are very common. So we will target those sites, especially we will catch bats for sampling while human pig samples will be collected near the bat guano farms and wet markets. As you can see the pictures on the right side, 
these are background farms and red trade at red market. In the meantime, we will conduct survey on general genosis knowledge and health exposure, mainly livestock and wildlife. And all the samples will be analyzed through the national partners. So once we identify the coronavirus from samples, further genome sequencing will be conducted to make a comparison of coronavirus between North and South. So we believe that this project will be helpful for the national partners to improve surveillance, reporting, and public health preparedness on emerging infectious diseases. Thank you. I'm over to Janet. Thank you, Husek. Next, Annie Cook of Ilri will present on slaughterhouses and COVID-19 in Kenya. Annie? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. Um, I'm a veterinary epidemiologist in Nairobi, in, at Ilri in Nairobi, and I started uh, some years ago my research in slaughterhouses, uh, looking at the epidemiology of zoonotic diseases. So when there was an announcement in April last year that slaughterhouse workers in the EU and the USA and other countries were at high risk for COVID-19, it um, attracted my attention. And I started looking at the reasons that slaughterhouse workers might might be at high risk and um, the risk factors seem to be the crowded conditions, the low temperatures, the moisture and dust in the environment and the low socioeconomic status of many of the workers in the migrant workforce. So I suggested to colleagues here at Ilri that we might do the same and look at slaughterhouse workers in Kenya and as you can see from the pictures that the uh, conditions in the slaughterhouses here are a little different to, uh, to some countries overseas but there are many similarities with a, often a migrant and a low socioeconomic economic uh, status workforce, um, but and also there's quite a lot of moisture and dust in the environment. And when we thought about looking at doing a zero survey for the slaughterhouse workers, we realized we didn't have a baseline. And so we've been working very closely with the community, with Kiambu County, actually, in uh, just outside of Nairobi, to establish that community zero survey. And so we'll be doing that together with the Ministry of Health and collecting the same information from both groups. And the aim of this research will be that we get um, both the information about the zero prevalence in the county. We'll also be able to identify how high risk groups in the county, not just the slaughterhouse workers, based on the uh, information that we collect. And we're working together with colleagues here at Ilri to actually develop an in-house ELISA um, to, to do the serology testing. And we'll be able to use the data that we collect to look at other zoonotic diseases in slaughterhouse workers and to establish their risk for those, dis those diseases as well. Thank you. Thank you, Annie. Uh, as Katia mentioned at the opening, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine is an important partner in the CGIR COVID-19 hub, and we're grateful to have several of their researchers with us today. Kimberly Fornis of LHTM will present on the serological footprints of spillover events in Guinea. Kimberly? Hi, thank you. Um, so we often characterized emerging infectious diseases by their transmission pathways. So this initial spillover event typically occurs when a pathogen is spread from wildlife populations to people, potentially through another animal species or insect vector. Depending on the transmissibility of the pathogen, this spillover event can either lead to an isolated infection in a single person, a cluster of infections in a few people, which we commonly call a stuttering change of transmission, or widespread transmission in human populations, as we've seen with COVID. While we typically detect larger outbreaks in people, these isolated infections are much more difficult to capture through routine disease surveillance methods and may frequently be misdiagnosed or missed. 
These spillover events commonly occur in rural agricultural populations living and working in very close proximity to wildlife habitats, areas which frequently have much less access to larger hospitals and health facilities. Serological surveillance offers a very powerful opportunity to increase the probability of actually detecting these rare events. By measuring long-lived antibody responses representing exposure, serological methods actually increase the chances of detecting foci of transmission not captured at health facilities. Additionally, multiplex serological platforms allow us to measure antibody responses to multiple pathogens from a single sample and provide an opportunity for multi-disease surveillance. We are currently exploring how we can integrate these types of serological data with mathematical models of how antibodies change over time to characterize spatio-temporal patterns of disease transmission and spillover in rural populations in Guinea, West Africa. These data will allow us to better understand the distribution and the frequency at which spillover events occur within these agricultural landscapes and allow us to think about how we can design strategies for emerging infectious disease surveillance and control. Thank you. Thank you, Kimberly. Next, Joe Lines, who is from LSHTM and co-leads the CGIR COVID-19 Hub Working Group on One Health, will present on behalf of his colleague, Sedona Sweeney, who was unable to be with us today. Sedona works on integrated modeling of health and economic impacts. Joe? So the prompt here is the inter interactions between uh, economic and uh, health effects that uh, John referred to in his introduction. <coughs> Those, we know that the modeling has been a, an important component of, of economic theory for a long time and ditto in parallel but unconnected epidemiological models are key for our understanding for, of infectious disease. COVID has brought these together because the vicious circle of poverty and ill health, which is visible in many infectious diseases, not least TB, HIV, malaria, they're well studied in those. COVID's brought that to the forefront because we've used lockdown, especially to suppress the transmission. So those who think that's a bad idea, talk about the, the uh, economic effects of lockdown, the poverty caused by lockdown, and the ill health that is consequential on that poverty. Uh, conversely, the people who defend lockdown say that oh, without the lockdown, the, the uh, ill health caused by the epidemic would be even worse. If we've got uh, people who work on economic modeling for national planning with part partner countries and that expertise, LSHTM is a center of expertise for the economic modeling uh, we are bringing those together to try to build those bridges so that the interactions of the vicious circle can be described in the modeling. Uh, the first step in that, of course, is just to feed the output of one into the other. Eventually, we need to build them together. It's a long, long, long-term plan, very ambitious. COVID is the thing that has highlighted the need for this. Janet. Thank you, Joe. And thank you also for being here to share that work with us. Um, our last rapid fire presenter is Samuel Oyola from Illery, who will present his work on new variants of SARS-CoV-2. Samuel. Thank you, Janet. So at the onset of COVID-19 pandemic in Kenya, the government requested Illery to support her with testing. 
So with limited funding from BMZ, we tested over 30,000 samples between June and December 2020. And from our positivity rate, as shown there, we saw that this reflected quite well with the three main infection waves that we have witnessed in Kenya so far. And when the new variants of concern started spreading, the government of Kenya again requested Italy to support her with tracking the new variants uh, using genomic surveillance technology. So this activity just started last month, and so far we have detected several variants, including two variants of concern, the B117 and the B1351, uh, circulating in the population. Of the samples that we have sequenced so far, the UK variant uh, B117 has become dominant in the population. We have also discovered other emerging uh, variants of interest as shown in the phylogenetic tree over there. And we've also discovered other emerging variants of interest um, that we are still evaluating. So uh, more dense and continuous sequencing is needed to track uh, the circulating and emerging strains and to monitor them for any possible uh, public health uh, response. So the current activities are currently funded with the livestock CP, uh, CRP. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Samuel. And thanks to all our rapid fire presenters for taking on this two minute challenge. We look forward to learning more about all of your work. I'd like to remind everyone at this point, if you're tuning in live, you can submit your brief questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag askifpre on Twitter. We will be coming to the Q&A session soon. Before then, however, it is my pleasure to introduce Jeff Bage, Professor of International Development at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Jeff is an agricultural scientist and ecologist with a career in inter interdisciplinary research for development. We have been very grateful for his involvement with A4 and H over the years. And likewise, we're grateful to have him with us today to moderate our panel discussion on how to effectively collaborate across sectors on One Health. Jeff, over to you. Thank you, Janet. And welcome to this panel session as part of our event today. We have five international experts in One Health who come from different continents and professions and bring different perspectives to this complex and interdisciplinary subject. Let me briefly introduce them in the order that you um, see them in your program, and then we will begin our discussions. Vesiru Banfo is a veterinary epidemiologist and director emeritus of Centre Suisse de Recherche Scientifique in Côte d'Ivoire. He is currently the director of Afrique One Aspire, which coordinates Pan-African research capacity in One Health. Vipat Karichidam is a health systems engineer and the executive director of Southeast Asia One Health University Network, a regional One Health network of 92 universities in eight Southeast Asian countries, working to develop a resilient and competent One Health workforce. Nitish Debnath is a veterinary scientist and virologist, former vice chancellor of Chittagong Veterinary and Animal Sciences University in Bangladesh. And he's been FAO special advisor in One Health in Bangladesh and currently heads the Fleming Fund program there on AMR. Alan Tollervy is a senior advisor to the agriculture research team at the UK Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office 
with a long experience in supporting international research on crop and animal production. Buthi Huang is senior officer um, of Vietnam's International Cooperation Department under the Ministry of Agriculture and Rural Development, and she is the national coordinator of Vietnam's Intersectoral One Health Partnership. So welcome panelists. Now panelists, I suspect that many One Health champions um, like us first reacted to the emergence of COVID-19 with the thought, I knew something like this would happen again. But I'm sure none of us took any joy in that successful premonition. And now that the threat posed to humanity by zoonotic diseases moving through food systems is much better appreciated by all, the One Health approach and One Health research has a tremendous opportunity to make a contribution. So I'd last, like to ask each of you how you think from your disciplinary and geographical perspectives that the One Health community should to the challenge and opportunities given by COVID-19. So I'd like to go around each panelist for a brief presentation and, and then um, come back uh, for further discussions as time permits. So please let me begin with Basiru. Thank you very much. Uh, good afternoon, good morning. Uh, the question is uh, very complex. And uh, as it has been mentioned earlier, uh, the One Health approach is used intensively in the academia. And what we experience now is uh, during the pandemic, how the concept or the approach can be used to be more effective. And this is where we want to address three pillars. Uh, the first pillar is the collaboration, if I see your question. And the question is that, why do we collaborate? Or why do we need to collaborate? Because if you look at the way our services is uh, fragmented through different ministries or in our academia during, uh, through our disciplines, uh, collaboration is trying to reconnect what has been differentiated as far as the one, uh, the, the, the health is interconnected in different platforms. So when we collaborate, we share resources first, we share knowledge, we share information, and we also share labs. And I was very happy to see how Ilri has uh, contributed in Kenya for uh, the, the, the tracking of the, 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 the coronavirus. And the second pillar is through this collaboration, how can we be more efficient? And the efficiency can be uh, assessed through the added value. And between the third pillar is our capacity in coordination. And this is where we have to develop a lot of expertise in order to coordinate this collaboration, which is lacking. And when we look at the response of the COVID-19, different countries, different institutions, and different regions have responded using different type of mechanism. And I can give the example of the One Health Platforms, the Emerging Response uh, Task Forces, the National Security uh, Task Force Model, or the Centralized System. And by doing that, it's very important to have in mind that 
For example, COVID-19 is a health problem, but which expand to many other issues, economic and social. And this is where we need to ask questions to other sectors. What can you bring in during the response? And one last thing I want to make, and that we also miss, is the comorbidity aspect, which is linked to nutrition. What make people go into forests and hunt for bushmeat? Because they want to balance their diet. What do we do for that? And secondly, how do we eat to avoid obesity or non-communicable diseases, which are the underlying factors of one, uh, the, 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 the COVID-19. So I just want to stop here for the time being. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Vasiru. May I turn now to Vita for um, your views? So thanks, Jeff. Uh, good day, everyone. Uh, so uh, regardless of, you know, uh, we believe that everyone has a role to play uh, in terms of the, this pandemic. So regardless of, you know, having the, the best One Health expert, uh, cutting edge technologies, uh, good health policy in place, uh, we can clearly see that uh, this is not enough. And the pandemics continue uh, as we are experiencing now. So I'm representing a university network uh, called Southeast Asia One Health University Network. As uh, Jeff mentioned that we are a consortium of 92 universities uh, in eight uh, Southeast Asian countries, working collaboratively uh, to improve One Health workforce capacities and build the next generation of One Health professionals with uh, cross-sectoral competencies uh, to effectively uh, prevent, detect, and respond to the infectious disease threats. So we believe that improving One Health literacies and foster a sense of social responsibility are necessary uh, to set the foundation for effective uh, public health response to the infectious disease threats in the future. So if you don't know how our actions uh, such as wildlife trade uh, would drive biodiversity loss and increase the list of uh, infectious diseases, people with good sense uh, of social responsibility uh, will act appropriately and uh, do not do it. So thus, uh, we are working to institutionalize a One Health concept and approach into the university offerings so and foster the future leaders uh, who are socially responsible uh, with system mindset and recognize the interdependency of uh, among human, animal, and nature environment. Additionally, uh, university is very good at research, so we are bring uh, try to bridge in the research gap uh, by linking the policymakers uh, with the university researcher uh, to study and supply good evidence-based information. So university can research uh, on the treatment and preventive vaccine use data analysis and disease modeling to predict uh, the number of new cases and deaths uh, based on the different public health policy measures, for instance. And lastly, we try uh, to advocate that the university also can play a pivotal role uh, in helping out uh, of the government increasing their national search capacity to fight outbreaks. So when health professionals are overwhelmed uh, with the demand for testing, tracing and treating the diseases, University can help uh, increasing diagnostic testing and contact tracing capability, and also uh, develop uh, innovative uh, low-cost solutions. So that's, uh, that's it for my first round. Uh, back to you, Jeff. Thank you, Vipa. 
May I turn now to Nitish from Bangladesh? What's your perspective on, on this challenge? Hello, Jeff. Thank you very much. Uh, good morning, good afternoon. And yes, I think my colleagues uh, have already mentioned about uh, the reality is that, you know, uh, zoonosis or spillover from animal to human is a reality of our life today. And COVID is teaching us uh, that, you know, in a very, uh, very miserable way, I would say. I just would like to uh, cite one example, you know, uh, as far as COVID is concerned, you know, first 67 days, uh, you know, the number of cases of COVID was 100,000 cases. And then uh, another 11 days, it took another 100,000 cases. And then another four days, another 100,000 cases. And another two days, 100,000 cases. So first 67 days were so crucial for controlling this disease. And we missed it, now it is all over the world. So I would like to emphasize one important point of One Health aspect is to really establish a sort of a surveillance system and not, you know, at a higher level only globally or nationally, we need to go to the even local level. And that could be a very integrated surveillance system. And that has been advocated for last one and a half decades uh, since, you know, One Health concept has been uh, very strongly advocated uh, globally. And I think this is one important thing that we need to work on in the future, how we can really uh, stop the, uh, or how we can resist any sort of pandemic in the future. One important thing that we have to consider that everybody talks about money, uh, that such a surveillance system costs a lot of money. Now, trillions of money you are going to lose because of the COVID-19, and for establishing such an integrated uh, surveillance system, you need to invest uh, billions of money. And for that thing, oh, we need uh, the capacity building for detection and of course, for the pre-response for human resources. And last of all, I just want to mention uh, one aspect of the whole uh, game uh, that you know, uh, the local uh, system, maybe in the uh, you know, resource poor uh, states and not have that uh, capacity, and I think uh, COVID has uh, taught us uh, that the whole one world, one health concept is so important for this reality. Uh, we've got to do this thing for irrespective of developed and developed country because uh, COVID or any uh, uh, pandemic, uh, any, you know, anywhere for everywhere. And with that note, I would like to say that COVID will, another COVID may come very soon. That is the prediction. And I would advocate for One Health surveillance system to everywhere, including national, in, you know, international and local level. Over, Jeff, thank you. Thank you, Nitish. And thank you for introducing sort of what we need to do next. I think that'll be our next round of discussions and, and hold that thought, please. While I turn to Alan Tullervy for your view from uh, SCDO. Alan. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Um, and, and good afternoon, everybody. Or good morning, good evening. Um, so I, I think it's hard to not think about the next step, actually, Jeff. Um, 
in the sense that you know COVID is a uh, uh, COVID nineteen or SARS CoV two virus jumped the species barrier you know six, uh, over a year ago probably December, and and it's now a, a human to human transmission. Um, so the question a lot of our one health thinking is around okay well that's happened but how do we stop the next the next uh, spillover how do we stop the next big zoonotic disease these things are consistent and they're becoming um, and becoming uh, more frequent. What drives them? How do we respond to that? And how do we use a One Health approach to try and think of that problem? That's not to say I don't think uh, the the COVID is is not something we think about. It's a very obviously a major driver of programming. And a big shout out here to Ifpri and A for for their work in supporting us and many of our international partners in thinking through the impacts of of uh, of COVID nineteen on food system generally. But um, but but. What we're trying to think about now is how do we how do we address you know a one, how do we use a one health approach to address some of these problems that that John mentioned you know food safety AMRs and you know, us I'd say that in the past we've done pretty poorly actually in bringing one health to bear to these problems as a, as a global policy approach uh, the tripartite I think works to some extent uh, between FAO OIE and uh, and WHO. But it hasn't really created the uh, uh, the framework for genuine joined up One Health approach in terms of thinking about how to identify and mitigate risks or uh, zoonotic spillovers uh, in a, in a in a coherent way. I think that the efforts around um, avian influenza, for example, uh, the stop pandemics interventions that were funded largely through FAO by USAID, I think made that invested a large amount of money. I think not all that money was successfully invested, uh, and it's because, it, it, partly because it's been very difficult to get one health system, a one health system approach embedded in government, uh, the way that governments are structured, the way that governments operate. Um, and there are a number of reasons for that, and I won't go into what we should do to address that, but simply to say, I think that for us, the, the key driver is ev an evidence base, which is essentially assembling making the case in an irrefutable way that in order to solve these problems, in order to reduce the risks of zoonotic spillovers, we need to act in a way that is outside the core intervention. So the health people think about COVID now as a health problem, and it is a health problem. But that's the way they frame and define the issue. In order to get health professionals who outnumber animal health professionals around about 10 to 1 and have 10 times the budget and 10 times the political interest, in order to get them to think about the food system as a driver of uh, zoonotic disease, you need to prevent, present some pretty compelling and strong evidence that, that their current way of thinking about these things is essentially it's incomplete. So it's wrong, it's incomplete. Second thing I'd say is you need to get people, professionals working in governments and in international agencies who are actually able to think in a much more broader way. The health, the health uh, professionals, system, the way the health professionals are trained, and that includes, in my experience, vets as well, is very siloed, it's very, very top-down hierarchical education system that tends to produce people that think about the health system as a health system. They struggle to look more broadly. Oh, I know there are many people who are now trying to take that much more encompassing approach around things like nutrition. And thirdly, you need to um, can present that argument, uh, present the evidence and present the arguments in a way that makes such a compelling case that ministers and policymakers 
feel unable to act in an opposite in the in the way that 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 they, they traditionally the system would re respond. So that you know, the, the assembling an evidence base is really important, but you need to build into in incentives for people to act in a different way. And I think right now our government system, certainly in the government I work in, is still very is highly siloed in the way it tends to think about problems. Um, and I think until we actually get that broader understanding outside academic institutions, which I think by and large are very good at thinking or trying to think in a much broader way, until you get a, a different way of thinking into government systems and present the evidence that makes governments think in a different way, then we're not going to get that sort of operational One Health approach embedded in the international system. Uh, John, th uh, thanks very much. Thank you, Ellen. Very fitting that you mentioned government action because our last speaker in our panel is Fong Vu Thi, who is uh, responsible for a governmental program in One Health. So, Fong, over to you for your thoughts. Yeah. Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Phil from uh, the National Coordinator for One Health Partnership of Vietnam. Uh, in, the, in my capacity, I only focus on the coordination between the different stakeholders, especially when you know that uh, the One Health in Vietnam is uh, leading uh, uh, with the leading role of the Ministry of Agriculture and Rural Development and in, co in cooperation with the two ministries, the Ministry of uh, Health and Ministry of uh, Environment and Natural Resources. We do think that uh, in Vietnam, um, Ministry uh, of uh, Agriculture and Ministry of Health have been evaluated uh, by the international organizations such as FAO, WHO, uh, OIE, uh, that uh, we are, we cooperate very well and successful, uh, successfully control epidemics. Uh, however, there are still many challenges uh, for One Health to work in practical conditions. Um, as well as to be applied on, uh, on uh, a very larger scale for the purpose of uh, human uh, or human protection. Uh, in fact, uh, we are still facing uh, infectious disease and Vietnam is uh, located in, uh, in the very hot area of infectious disease, which is affected by factors such as the, the population growth, um, urbanization or uh, environment change. So according to me, uh, the multidisciplinary coordination is effective uh, only when there is strong commitment and performance of um, the uh, across sector based on very specific uh, program or strategy um, or action plan with the coherent governance. Uh, the second thing is that uh, we should integrate uh, or in or coordinate the multidiscipline um, means we should uh, socialize organizational uh, groups uh, in society, such as uh, departments uh, or other social organizations. Therefore, the, inter, uh, the mainstreaming and coordinating activities of different stakeholders and organizations is a way of working for greater efficiency uh, and better assignment of responsibilities uh, thereby effective collaboration of multi-sector sector can be done. And thirdly, um, the, uh, each sector should be defined with function and task, um, objectives and groups 
available resources of each organization, including strengths and weaknesses of each sector or each uh, stakeholders. And uh, lastly, uh, each uh, stakeholder or the sector should agree on the direction to conduct on the one health activities uh, uh, and clear responsibilities and the tax of uh, our of our own. And uh, it is very necessary to, uh, to develop the multi-sector coordination, uh, coordination regulations because we should have the mechanism and the regulations so that every every sector can do and can follow uh, the regulation uh, for the better uh, epidemic in the future, not only um, the COVID now. Thank you. Jeff, you're muted. Thank you. Thank you, Ruti. Um, so we've heard a lot about the, the first the value of um, a One Health approach. I think Basiru um, summed that up really nicely. Collaboration, how that creates greater efficiency, how it builds capacity for coordination. And, and we've seen some of the challenges of that. Alan pointed out the, the siloed approach. Um, Vuti has pointed out, in fact, um, you know, there are ways to do this at the national level to address this. Um, and, and Vipad has mentioned particularly the, the role of academia in building um, a community of future um, scientists and researchers who can support and, and champion a One Health approach so that this kind of, of sectoral isolation will disappear, hopefully, in the end. Um, in the few minutes, and we only have a few minutes remaining, let me, let me uh, ask uh, the question that uh, was perhaps predicated by, by um, Nitish's uh, comment that, you know, we need to move quickly. That may be one thing we've learned, and local surveillance is important. Let me ask some of the other speakers um, what they would take as, as the important next step now in, in um, changing the systems that we now have to better prepare for and prevent the next COVID-19 outbreak. And uh, probably time for just a, a quick answer from, from everyone, but let me start um, with uh, Fong Vuti. What's the, the most important next step in preventing the next COVID-19? Uh, we think that uh, for, the, for the next step, it should be the capacities and the resources of each sector. We should, we should prepare well enough for the capacity building and the responsive needs of each sector so that for the next, next event, we can well prepare and well coordinate among different sectors to be ready for any event in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Basiru, what would you say is, is the key next step in, in, in your sphere of, of activity? Yes, I think uh, apart from co coordination and capacity, I just want to highlight that uh, bringing evidence is not enough. So we need to look at other aspects that can help decision maker to make decision. So uh, beyond the health aspect, we need to find other type of information that can help them to make a very comprehensive decision without compromising people's uh, livelihoods. Thank you. Uh, Vipat, what's your thought on, uh, on a key next step? So very brief. So making a case for sustainable investment uh, to strengthen 
uh, both animal and human health system, uh, including investing in human resources and surveillance system. Uh, that's the next step because the funding system right now is there, right? And the pandemic then we don't want that to stop. So sustainable uh, investment in strengthening our systems. That's the future next step for me. Great. Alan, as a funder, uh, what's your view of the next? Uh, well, yeah, so I'd say that um, the, 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 the past, I mean, we've had a series of zoonotic spillovers over the last 20 years, and, and each time there's been a, res a short-term response and actually quite a lot of investment uh, into the response, but it hasn't been sustained. It hasn't been targeted particularly well, and it hasn't led to, this, hasn't led to the sort of system transformation or, or um, that, that is needed in order to reduce the risk of zoonotic spillovers and, and the, the emerging pandemic. So I sort of feel that, you know, I, some one of the previous speakers said evidence isn't enough, and I completely agree with that point. But equally, knowing what works, knowing that having some certainty that what we're trying to do here is based on things we've done in the past that have worked and things that we've done in the past haven't worked, and we're clear about what the evidence tells us, um, both in terms of what works and what's not likely to be successful, I think is really, really important. And assembling that in a way in which we can actually act on it. So individual studies here and there are really useful, but I think we need a more comprehensive evidence base, particularly to address three things. One is understand what the drivers of zoonotic emergence are. We have only very partial understanding of that. Um, and what the risk factors are. Secondly, understanding how to act in a way that mitigates those, it doesn't cause undue hardship on farmers, for example, or re makes recommendations farmers can't follow. Secondly, when we do have outbreaks that we're able to respond quickly. And thirdly, having a suite of tools and technological solutions, better vaccines, better biologicals, that we can deploy quickly. And I think all of those things are needed but we need to understand how to do that in the context where these risks are actually emerging much better than this is the case now. Thanks. Great. Thanks very much. Nitish, let me give you the last word. We've got a minute. Uh, yeah. Uh, thank what you, Jeff. The last word, you know, from our experience in Bangladesh, uh, what our colleagues have already mentioned, we are making a three approaches in Bangladesh. One whole of a government approach, whole of a society approach, and also galvanizing the support from the international community. And for that thing, you know, we have developed a several civil society movement under the banner of One Health Bangladesh. And also in the government sector, we have developed a, a One Health Secretariat. And we are taking a lot of support from the UN agency, USAID, uh, even from the uh, UK uh, Department of, uh, you know, uh, Commonwealth uh, Ministry. And this coordination, we have been trying to develop over the last uh, you know, since 2008, and what we saw that, you know, as sort of a civil society movement can really influence the government to take up the uh, One Health program. And we have seen that, and it is working well, it is taking time, but we have seen during this COVID time, you know, One Health worked very well in terms of whole of the government approach, as well as the professional partnership in terms of detection even in terms of tracing, uh, human health, animal health work hand in hand. And that is a good experience from our One Health perspective in Bangladesh. Over to Jeff. Thank you, Nitish. And thank you all panelists for some fantastic contributions, good ideas, suggestions. Um, 
you know, and as Zipa says, we're in a unique position now in terms of resources and interests. If we don't make uh, the best of this, um, it's our own fault. <laughs> uh, clearly. So I'll pass back over to, uh, to Janet uh, for the discussion session, perhaps some more questions to you. Thank you, Jeff. And thanks, uh, let me echo those thanks to our panelists for their thoughtful insights and reflections. Um, we are now entering the Q&A portion of the session, so I invite all our speakers to please ensure your cameras are on. We do have a number of questions coming in, so I'm also going to ask everyone to please keep your answers brief so that we can get to as many of them as possible. Um, I'd like to open, however, with a question uh, to someone you haven't heard from yet today. Hung Nguyen is with ILRI, and he co-leads the CGIR COVID Hub Working Group on One Health, and he was behind the development of today's webinar. Um, so we would like to hear from him. Um, Hung, you're also leading the design of an initiative on One Health for the new One CGR portfolio. Could you share with us some lessons from COVID-19 you see informing the development of that work? Yes, uh, thank you, Janet. Uh, good morning, afternoon, evening, everyone. It's a really pleasure to uh, co-organize this, uh, prepare this event with you, Janet, and colleagues from the systems. Um, yeah, I, I would say that you know, uh, as the one CGI is moving ahead with the new uh, uh, portfolio of investment, and uh, we are happy to uh, design this One Health initiative. This is only one of the 36 initiatives we are developing. And um, I think that's the good uh, uh, lesson I have learned so far from COVID 19 is in fact, COVID is very bad, but it's given a very good opportunity to make people aware about the euphemism of the One Health approach because of the nature of zoonotic disease of COVID-19. Even we have not found so far the origin of this uh, SARS-CoV-2, but the understanding on the intersection between human health, animal health, and the environment is very uh, close and important to, to, to understand. So to move forward, uh, I would say that you know, the AFNH program has been working on One Health for the last eight years. And we try to build up on this success and develop further the One Health work we have been doing so far within CGIR. And like John mentioned from the beginning, One Health approach is important to address a certain areas with the entry point of agriculture and food system, namely AMR, antimicrobial resistance is an important issue. The foodborne disease and food safety is also another area. And more importantly, we will focus more on uh, the zoonotic disease, including uh, epidemic and pandemic uh, disease. And we would include uh, uh, the package of work on the wildlife, like Alan from FCDO said, to really try to understand the drivers of emergence of different type of zoonotic disease. And only when you understand the systems and the factors uh, driving the emergence of diseases, uh, we come up with a set of tools and approach to uh, prevent and control it in a more efficient way. So uh, this is actually the plan that we will work, hopefully, in the next future. And always, like we, uh, we keep the spirit of One Health, CJIs really need to work with countries, with partners, different partners, and the partnership and intersectoral collaboration will be key to continue and promote this One Health approach. Thank you, Janet. Thank you, Hong. Um, and you may want to come in on this next question. We had a question come in from for John, um, but maybe I'll, I'll pose it to both of you since this builds a little bit on what you were talking about. Um, since we should expect more zoonotic diseases, 
Uh, is there any initiative um, monitoring specific potential pathogens globally, um, or the, the person who posed the question asked um, uh, in Africa in particular, um, in terms of uh, preparedness? Um, some green shoots or seeds of it, but not systematic enough or organized enough yet. Um, and related to Africa, I've been quite impressed by the emergence and strengthening of the Africa CDC, and maybe Basiro even wants to say something because he might be closer to that. Um, but this coordination takes a lot of work. There are strong incentives for doing it. Uh, Africa's got 54 countries, so it's, it's quite hard to get that. But what you heard about sharing infrastructure, sharing people, the perspectives, I think, are all really important for getting that surveillance. We also have to be smarter about surveillance. There's been lots of thinking about crowdsourcing and other types, not just diagnostic testing, to get at things, uh, very innovative type things that we need to apply. Um, if this isn't an impetus to get moving on those issues, I don't know what is. There's a few things that are happening, but, but not fast enough and not systematic enough. And I, I see that as an important lever uh, for the future. Thank you, John. Um, Basiru, I don't know if you wanted to come in on that also. Yeah, there are a lot of fragmented initiative on the surveillance and uh, having something global in Africa is very scarce, but we have the PREDICT program that have conducted very huge uh, surveillance system in the wildlife and domestic animal. And we have now the African CDC coming with uh, the, the plan. But what we need to, or where we need to make effort is to uh, get use of the available data in all the type of countries in order to have uh, information uh, that can help to, 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 to develop strategies and uh, uh, make decisions. We have scattered that data, and, but still need to improve this data collection but that is costed, as uh, some of uh, our colleagues said, we need investment in that. Over. Great, thank you. Um, we have a question coming in from Mr. Snoha, um, asking how do we implement the One Health approach in India? Um, so I would invite our panelists, um, if you'd like to comment on uh, India in particular, or um, perhaps um, those of you um, who you know, may perhaps would like to share some experiences um, uh, implementing at the country level um, in other countries. So um, I, will, I will ask about what steps to take for implementing a One Health approach at the national level. Well, can I respond to that? Sure, of course. Yes, well, you know, this is a, an experience that I'm sharing with you from Bangladesh perspective. Maybe that will be useful for India as well as in other uh, similar countries. You know, we started this uh, um, uh, One Health Bangladesh movement from the universities, but we invited all the government agencies, you know, professional associations. That was the beginning. Mm -hmm. But what we saw that, at the, you know, when critical times comes, uh, government even uh, looks for solution. Say, for example, in Bangladesh, uh, you know, we got two problems during that time when we started One Health movement. One is the Nipah, another was the anthrax. And that was a huge and uh, huge, uh, huge and cry uh, within the government. 
proud of nervousness. And we saw that, you know, working together uh, was much easier during that time. And one of the best example I can cite is the NIPA. You know, the case of NIPA that we worked in Bangladesh, uh, it worked very well. It was a multidisciplinary work. And that is how we established the NIPA, unlike other countries in Bangladesh, it comes from bed directly to the pump itself. And that is how it is transmitted to human beings. And similar cases we have established in terms of anthrax and later on also with avian influenza. And that experience came in a way, as I mentioned earlier, as sort of One Health uh, government structure is now developed with the strategy document that we prepared uh, in a very multilateral and multi-sectoral uh, collaborative form. We started with three ministries, Ministry of Health, Ministry of Livestock, and Ministry of Environment and Forestry. Now we are moving towards agriculture as a crop. We are also including them. And that is working uh, relatively well, I would say. And we also got some funding from the government. Uh, you know, they have provided some budget uh, through the Ministry of Health. And we are using that funding for capacity building for multi-sectoral uh, you know, surveillance and outbreak investigation. So that sort of experience may be useful for other countries, including India. Over. Thank you. And Basiru, I see your hand is raised too. Would you uh, come yes. in on this one, please? Yeah, I well, just want to add, saying that uh, uh, if you want to implement One Health, it's not just the academia or the government business. We need to involve the communities also because their voice counts. And we tend to forget that uh, whatever we are producing, I think who mentioned the understanding and the system, the, the system and the factors. Uh, those communities are also aware of what they, they, they have and co-constructing the intervention with them, understanding also their, their thinking on the problem can help to speed uh, or to, to, to construct a very a robust uh, intervention for, for, for them. So this is one of the pillars which is lacking when we implement the One Health. We think that we are bringing cooked solution for them based on our research or our theory. It's important that we take into account their knowledge also in how they want uh, the health to be addressed with them. And this is very, very important. And this has what we call the, the, the scientific foundation of One Health, which is the transdisciplinarity, taking into account the local knowledge into the development of intervention over. Thank you, Basiru. And Alan, I see your hand is raised also. Could you come in? Uh, yeah, I was going to ask a question, actually, if I'm allowed to. I mean, it, it, listening to Dr. Debenath talking about Nipah virus, one of the things I think, uh, one of the things we think about One Health as a, 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 not as a concept, but as an operational tool, uh, is that it, it, it has been applied, it's only really been applied effectively where there is a specific problem that needs to be addressed that requires a One Health approach. So whether that's TB in India or it's Nipah virus in Bangladesh um, or avian influenza, though not really a great example of success, but nevertheless. And, and it's because in order to build that interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary approach, you need to be dealing with something that can be defined in a way that you can see what the solution looks like. 
And if you're looking at One Health generally, which looks at EMR on one hand and food safety somewhere else, and these are very different problems and are addressed in a very different set of actors operating in a different way. The role of the private sector is different. The role of government agencies is different. And that varies from country to country. I'm just wondering if is, is the solution or is one of the conclusions about operating what One Health is it conceptually it works as an idea, but as a practical tool, it only works when you can define the problem that you're trying to address in a way that is obvious to everybody that needs a One Health solution. Over. Thank you for that. Um, so panelists, um, if anybody would like to come in and-, and Yeah, um, uh, Janet, I just want to add one point with Ellen. Uh, you know, this, uh, what he said, he's right, but uh, just one small experience that I'm sharing with you. Uh, we have been uh, conducting a research uh, program in Bangladesh. It is a, not only Bangladesh, it is a sort of a four countries from Lanka, India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and Vietnam, One Health Poultry Hub. This is a sort of broad concept that we are trying to establish, and that is a very multidisciplinary and what uh, a lesson that we are learning from One Health Poultry Hub is that working together uh, with human health, uh, animal health, and also along with the uh, production uh, people, particularly those who are involved uh, with the farming, with the poultry. And this uh, hub system is bringing people together to implement how you can really establish a proper biosecurity at farm level. What are the value chain uh, really risk factors uh, throughout the risk plane of the uh, poultry production? And what sort of role both uh, veterinarians as well as the public health people uh, can uh, want? And this is what uh, it is showing. And it has evolved from a gel project we call Baljak. And that is the experience we are using in the context of Bangladesh. And we are learning quite a lot over. Thank you. Pasiru, uh, um, would you come in on this too? Yes, I think it's a very good question. And uh, for, for me, uh, we can implement the One Health at different scale, depending on the problem. Uh, you can have a very local problem and you address that with One Health. But when you have a global pandemic like uh, COVID-19, then it goes beyond the country or a local situation. This is where we need maybe an international organization to work as uh, a, a group with different sector to handle the problem. It's not something you can handle at local level with global problem. So it depends on the scale of the problem and the context in which the problem you have when you address the, the, the One Health. If you look at the way the tripartite uh, handled the uh, avian influenza, it was very effective, but you can have very tiny region where you have a small localized problem where you need also to target with localized One Health approach, over. Thank you for that. Um, I would like to, uh, I have another question coming in on sort of connected to this, but I'd like to ask on Fong Gusi to please come in. Um, you know, relating to the, the rapid change that Vietnam has experienced and continues to experience, what would you say are one or two main One Health priorities the government is focusing on and how are you implementing them? And I think it also draws on this question of, of the scale um, at which things are being addressed um, that some of these other questions um, have, have handled. Bangluthi, are you um, able to yes. come in on that? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
you know that uh, for the uh, new One Health Partnership, uh, phase 2021-25, we have uh, six objectives and seven working areas. And we think that uh, for the new phase, we would like to focus on the very two priority ones. The first one is AMR, and the second one is wildlife and wild animal, which is very infectious to the human health. So in this phase, we would like to focus on the, these two priorities. However, we don't put less important to any work any uh, seven working area. But uh, for this uh, phase, we, we would like to, to focus on these two areas. And um, uh, go, go, going back to the question that uh, I myself think that for the One Health, uh, uh, One Health approach is uh, the duties and the responsibility of every partner, the domestic partner and also the international partner from the local level to the governmental level. It should be the responsibility of all. So uh, for the One Health Partnership of Vietnam, we would like to call for any attention and any engagement and participate, uh, participation from the different international partners who wanna uh, come to see, come and to work with Vietnam One Health Partnership and uh, especially the important role of Sergia, uh, um, who can introduce and who can work with us directly for any program and activities in the future uh, of the One Health Partnership. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Vipat, I have a question that I'd like to, um, to direct to you, if I may, um, and sort of builds on this uh, this issue of collaboration, you lead a, a network to build capacity in One Health across sectors. What would you say are the challenges in building a One Health approach across different sectors? And in your experience, um, how have different sectors been able to best work together? Or what recommendations would you have? So I think in, in terms of the foster collaboration or, or to, to in order to solve the, the complex issues, uh, such as the COVID-19 that we're experiencing now, for the people to work together, they have to come in and build trust and relationship, right? So I think that's the most uh, and, and the critical things that we need to get to know one another. Uh, we, we learn uh, to share our perspective. Each of us has our own expertise. Uh, no one knows it all to solve challenging issues. So people have to come in uh, with their open mindset that, and, and contribute uh, their own piece. So it's take time uh, and, and effort. Uh, so continuously uh, being patient, uh, build on uh, gradually uh, of, of the, the, the relationship and you know, having ongoing platform like the webinar today and uh, so, so one, one health uh, platform uh, in, in Vietnam and, and other areas where to bring uh, people from different sector uh, together uh, to get to know one another. For our role as the academy, uh, we try to build those linkages since they are young. So we try to have uh, multidisciplinary students uh, from different disciplines, both from the human health, animal health, environmental health, come and learn together. Because we believe once they are friends, they foster those relationships. When they become the leaders in the future, uh, it's just a matter of the phone call when there's something happening. Let's come and work together. And, and we hope that you know, we can uh, resolve uh, the work and, and the solution uh, immediately uh, faster in the future. Back to you, Janet. Thank you. And those are definitely great recommendations for collaboration. 
I have a question that I think I'd like to, to welcome anyone on the panel to respond to. It's from Anna Maria at the Center for Development Research, ZEF. Most of the One Health initiatives are still placing public health at the center of things. Are there programs that prioritize health of animals or environment over human health? Oh, you're all thinking about it. Is anybody? Well, I, I, I would never say over human health. I mean, that that is that, that would be a difficult justification. There are certainly things that prioritize animal health. Um, but, you know, to suggest that somehow we're prepared to accept a certain degree of human mortality or ill health, something to protect animal health, I think it'd be a difficult thing for any account, funder that's accountable to, in my case, taxpayers to defend. So um, I, I think that, that there is an element of trade-offs implicit, I think, in One Health as there is in climate change and other, other things. I mean, in a sense, you know, you have to accept to some extent that um, there are costs associated with, you know, um, mitigating risks from spiller rents, for example, or prioritizing animal welfare, which may, you know, so many programs would essentially try to ensure high standards of animal welfare. And that might, you know, for instance, commercial poultry investments that we make, we generally, we'd expect them to be at least aware of the impacts and be responding to the concerns of high welfare standards associated with livestock production. And we would expect those um, to be reflected in the operational costs of the production system and that that might reflect greater sustainability and short-term loss of uh, economic return. So, um, you know, I think all of any arguments around social, environmental, or, or in this case, health sustainability would, would imply some degree of trade-off in objectives. And we would expect those to be rationally managed. So for example, if, you know, in the long run, um, if, if we have to de-intensify agricultural production systems as a key element of uh, reducing the use of antibiotics and their spillover into the environment and the risk of antimicrobial resistance, we would definitely see that as a key element, but we would see it as a win-win. Better for the animals, it's better for us in the long term, better for humans in the long term. In the short term, it might mean a trade-off in terms of economic returns, but those would definitely be worthwhile. So the key point is that we need to attach metrics and analysis to that, not just make these arguments in very generic, non-specific ways. We see a lot about the climate change arguments, we would like to see those arguments being applied in a very evidence-led way that is based and grounded on high-quality research and a strong evidence base so that we can manage those trade-offs in a, in, a, in a responsible way. Thank you for that. Um, Hung, um, would you be interested in coming in on this one? Yes, I, I think that I just want to add one point that, you know, that is a very interesting question. And I would say that, you know, thanks to, to the human health uh, put in the middle that, you know, you have many projects promoting One Health. Uh, but actually, uh, uh, historically, this uh, One Health approach has been very much promoted and championed by people from veterinary medicine side. You know, if you look at many active people in, in, in One Health, they, they mainly coming from uh, from, from, from animal health side. What we need to do more is in fact, you know, uh, the human health and the animal health, I think that that would uh, have been 
uh, 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 quite well uh, covered. Uh, what is missing in one now? Uh, we, we talk often is about environmental aspect and social economics aspects that you know it has been a little bit missing there, and, and that give a little bit more uh, opportunities to transcend the environmental and economics part. And uh, that leads to the question of how to invest in One Health. And many people talked about that from donor side, but also from development side. And I think that uh, we need to generate, uh, sorry, I'm from the, the, the research perspective. That's why we need to come up with evidence and generating more evidence on how One Health uh, operates on the ground and how to make the case of One Health. And, and, and uh, apart from international support to promote One Health approach in different uh, countries in the global south, I believe that also uh, the country itself and the uh, you know uh, local authority have to be aware more and invest more in this One Health. And, and by having this parallel approach, you know, resource coming from outside and also internally, you mobilize resource to promote this One Health. Only in this way, I would see the sustainability and the operational level of One Health at country, but also at local level. Thank you for that, Hung. And I just wanted to see if any of our other panelists want to come in on this point. Um, give you a moment before we close, because we are coming up on the end of yeah, our, our I, I just want to add on investing in, in One Health. Uh, uh, we can divide that into two. Uh, we always say that in, for example, low and middle income countries, uh, we have very limited resources and we cannot afford investing in different sector with different equipment. If you look at, for example, with COVID-19, we had uh, some veterinary lab with good technology that could have helped the health sector to, to, to make the testing like uh, what Ilri did. But we tend of separating this. And instead of waiting for external resources, we have to learn how to use, to combine our scarce resources in, instead of dividing that in different sectors. This is the first step we can, we can take uh, when we, we, we are implementing. The scarce resources, the knowledge we have, let us put that together and see what it can be, how this can reduce the, the, the cost of uh, intervention if everybody has to work in, in silo. Over. Thank you, Basiru. That was a, a great note, I think, to end our question and answer session on. Um, so thanks to everyone for posing these and many more intriguing questions to our speakers. We unfortunately weren't able to get to all of them, but we do look forward to continuing this discussion online through various social media channels. But I'd now like to ask John McDermott to share a few closing reflections on everything we've covered today. John? Thank you. Well, we've covered a lot, and I really would like to thank all the panelists and presenters, and it, it was very rich. I wanted to focus on kind of two areas that I heard about that, that came up as important next steps. So one is, how do we help governments, basically, do something better? Um, and um, so first of all, we heard about the silos and the cross-sectoral challenge. And in a way, we have systems of government where sectors compete. Health competes with agriculture and others for resources, budget, etc. So in a sense, some of that alignment has to be enforced from on top, from the president or the prime minister or the minister of finance. And, and we see that in COVID. So that's where one of the alignment or coherence things happens. 
Um, the other, I think, thing is if, if we can't figure out a sustained response from such a crisis, then we're not going to learn very much because this has been a big, a big trauma and it's going to go on for a while. And so if we can't learn a sustained response, um, we better think about how we can. And I was thinking when people were talking about the experience with SARS, because policymakers are the ones who have to, I mean, the, the people are trying to pull things together at the government level, have to learn something. And what did they learn from SARS? The countries in East Asia learned a lot about SARS and it really helped them with COVID. Korea, Vietnam, Taiwan, <laughs> they learned a lot. Um, I come from a country, Canada, that thought they learned a lot from SARS. They were badly affected. They rearranged their whole public health system to do it, but then they didn't sustain it. They had a wonderful surveillance system that they were sharing with the rest of the world. They dropped it. Uh, they didn't follow the advice and the evidence necessary to do things, and they just didn't sustain the effort, even though they invested a lot and kind of follow up. So, so there's something to be said and some congrats. And, and I think helping, you know, whether there's closed rooms or things where policymakers can discuss their failures without sharing them with the rest of us would be helpful. But I think it's important um, going forward. On the, there's a lot of great things said on the capacity side. So I was talking about capacity of policymakers uh, by, uh, by VPAC and, and others, and, and in a very nice way. I think we have to be nice to each other. We have to understand, we have to have broad perspectives. That was all, that was all great. Um, the evidence, I think there's a lot of strengths in the different sectors that we're dealing with. Health is really good at having very specific evidence and following it. Um, I always, I've never had a minister of agriculture saying, what evidence do you have that this program's gonna work? But ministers of health ask you all the time, is this gonna work? Where's the field trial? What's the burden? What's the economic? They, they rely on evidence. Now, sometimes it's too narrow. And I think that's where the food systems, the agriculture can come in because it has a broader perspective, but th there are strengths and weaknesses across the sectors on the evidence and we need to think through that. And, and, and uh, there's a lot of data as Basiro said that we're not sharing that we have to take advantage of, that's clear. I think an, another thing where it has to come together, and this is one of my main lessons from COVID, is we have really failed the poor, totally. Um, and we, we haven't been very systematic about helping them on basic services, which cut across all these issues, health, food, education, water, their basic needs. Um, and I think that's a great focus group. And just to think about them and what they need and how that works will be a, a great thing for governments to do. Now, what about the second challenge, which is how do we get the kind of sustained day-to-day -day efforts where it's people's jobs to do things, which we heard a lot. And I think Fong was really great at kind of saying how that's happening in Vietnam. And I have a lot of admiration for that. Uh, what you plan, what you need to think about, how you talk to the other sectors, et cetera, that's great. We hired a lot of great lessons about scarce resources and scarce infrastructure and how they're shared in the presentation from Hillary, from Basiro's comments, et cetera. So um, Alan, the, the avian flu wasn't a total disaster. It did get health people to talk to vets and other people who had never talked to each other before in Africa and Asia. So at least they got to meet each other. Maybe that didn't get followed through, but, but we, can, we can build on that. So the labs, the testing, the cold storage, the skills, 
um, the research, those can all come together. And finally, a lot of people talked about communities and we had the question about who take, you know, does anybody take an environmental health perspective or a animal health perspective over a human health perspective? And the answer is communities. I had the privilege when I was a young vet of working in a pastoral community in what's now South Sudan. These are people who lived the way they've lived for 10,000 years. And they valued animal health far more than human health. And they drove their system on animal health because those animals were their sustained survival. I think we have the same thing with environmental health. If you look at the communities that Amy and Julia are working with in forests and the people who work with them, they're thinking about the forest, that's gonna sustain them. They have a deep understanding of how they have to look after the environmental health and live within that context uh, that we can learn from as broader communities. So, I think there's a lot to learn from communities on the One Health approach and we should uh, work with them closely on that. So just a few observations from the really um, great um, discussions. And I mean, this is a topic I've been thinking about for 40 years. So uh, it's always a pleasure to be involved in these kinds of events. So thank you. Thanks, John. And thanks to all our panelists and presenters for their contributions to today's conversation as well as to our audience uh, for your engagement and your attention, and of course to IFPRI's team for their incredible support. Uh, with that, I'd like to close today's session and I wish you all a great day.